Tonight, we're one Sunday away from wrapping up our whole series on examining evangelism. So I'm trying to tie up a lot of pieces tonight. I hope I can do that efficiently and quickly. And then next week, we're going to wrap it up. Here's where we've been. You can see that we spent a little bit of time just introing the subject and looking at some efforts of evangelism. We watched those efforts on video, watching people evangelize. We spent time in the second week examining our own assumptions about evangelism, what we think. Then Morgan walked us through the book of Acts in a very quick way, but we tried to draw out of it the idea that we need to be using words and deeds. That was the main theme that Morgan gave us out of the book of Acts, specifically focusing on chapter 3. And then last week, Jeremy spent some time talking about what works and what doesn't. His exhortation to us was the best way for us to really evangelize is to be disciples ourselves, first and foremost. That was his admonition. I'm actually going to be relying on some of their commentary as we tie it up tonight. We are going to be looking at our role and the Holy Spirit's role tonight. And next week, we're going to take on Jesus' exclusive claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to examine what does that mean, and we're going to figure out how many of us actually believe that. So let me just point out some things that I think we've discovered along the way. When we looked at the subject of evangelism, we found out that, especially street evangelism and other kind of public preaching, we found out that most of us didn't feel well about this. We didn't like it because we didn't like the way it was practiced. That seemed to be our main objection. Here's some of the comments that came out. I pointed out that I think our objections are most based on just how we feel, not really based on any scriptural grounds. We just don't like it. We don't, it doesn't sit well with us, and we had a lot of reasons. Morgan said, we have to be careful not to worry too much about what others think. And I think that's a very good word for us. We have to be careful. <laughs> Because otherwise, if we worry too much about what anybody thinks, especially in this day and age where we're being pressured not to share faith at all, then maybe we'll just be silent. And I think society would like that very much. If you believe in spiritual warfare, I think Satan would like that very much. That was Morgan's admonition. Of course, he also said we need to be sensitive. We're not going to be obnoxious. But if we worry too much about finding just a receptive audience or what people will think of us, we may pause. Morgan also pointed out the public preaching was practiced throughout the book of Acts. It was there. So at least you can say that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they seemed to go out into the public and preach. It's not the exclusive way, nor would I point out that's probably the primary way. Paul seemed to be very strategic and had other ways that he did things when he went on his missionary journeys. But you can't discount that public preaching had a role to play. Jeremy reminded us last week, that evangelistic outreaches, crusades, street evangelism, all those things don't appear to be effective. In fact, if you look at the statistics that he was citing, somewhere between 3 and 6% retention rate after all these different kinds of evangelistic crusades, people actually get plugged in and continue to the best that we could know some sort of life with Christ. How would we know? Because they might join a church. We critiqued whether that's even a good standard to use, but what else do we have was the comment that was made. And that's when Jeremy also pointed out that living as disciples is our best witness, maybe far superior to just going out on the street and using a bullhorn to preach our message. Okay? Here's something else we looked at. We've been wrestling in here between whether evangelism is a program, whether it involves a relationship, or something in between. So here's some comments we made from that. Jeremy said last week, evangelism programs are rarely effective. They don't seem to work when we do them as a program. Morgan brought up that the book of Acts, however, 
points out that you don't actually need a relationship to evangelize. That's something that we fall into. We say, programs don't work, so we should only have a relationship with people. Well, there are times when we we'll won't have a relationship with people. I think that was a good call out. Although all of us admitted so far that relationships seem to work best. My critique of that would only be sometimes we just let relationships go on for years and do nothing, even when they're legitimate relationships. Many of us know friends who know very little or nothing about our life with Christ. And we're good friends with those people and have said nothing. My comment was programs work on the outside. They work externally, but they don't really work on the inside where the real change happens. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So I'll leave that there. And finally, Morgan's comment, words must accompany deeds. They're just some things that we have to be able to explain to people. He pointed out that general revelation gives us the idea that people are without excuse. They should be able to figure out that there is a God. But you know what? There's going to be a lot that we need to say right along with it. So for those of you who are strong in the deeds camp, Morgan is trying to pull us back and say, yes, that's fine, but we still need to have words that accompany them. People are just not going to find their way into an understanding of what we believe just by watching us do good things. That's a great place to start. And as we'll see in a moment, Jeremy admonished us that if you don't have that, it's going to be hard to get it to go, but I do believe we need to speak. That's what we're talking about in evangelism. And then, of course, we talked about not being inclined to evangelize. I pointed out that we don't hesitate to tell others about a great number of things, but it seems like this is the area we don't talk to others about. And I'm not just talking about mundane things. Of course, when I made the example, I was talking about things like our favorite restaurants or a great movie. But we are a community of people in this day and age that likes to convince others to do what we do. Like Sites like Yelp wouldn't even exist if people didn't feel the need to comment on and share things with people and tell other people to do what they do. But again, in this area, it seems like we're very quiet. It seems like no matter how much we share our political views, how much we share our beliefs about a lot of things, we do not delve into this area. I think part of it is these reasons that we put up here already. And I think this is the part of the series that I think we have to do the most self-examination. Is it because we're not excited about Christ? Is it because we've been pressured to remain silent, as I've pointed out? Is there some pressure that we feel that Faith is no longer something you can talk about. I wonder what it is in our society that we cannot talk about anymore. Can you think of a subject that is taboo to talk about? Because I think faith is one of them, but I can't think of another one. I mean, I could be provocative. I, I would like to say that it's faith and sex, but sex seems to be something anybody could talk about. Anytime. So what is it that we cannot talk about other than faith? I can't think of one. If you can, share it with me. Because it's maybe going to McDonald's, like that's also taboo. Like you can't tell your friends about that. All right? Like if you admitted that, then you'd be a fool, right? But I can't really think of another one, and that disturbs me, that we've accepted the fact that faith is to be private when nothing else is. And that's a tyranny of silence. Yes? It's like finances or something yeah. Finances, that's pretty good. Um, you mean like if I come up to you and say, like, how much do you make and where are you spending it? Yeah, I think that's a good call out. Thank you for bringing that up. Because that's another area that, especially in this group, we've tried to rattle that a little bit and say if we're really a community, we should be able to ask questions like that, especially about our, how we spend our money without somebody saying that's none of your business. Okay, so how I spend my money and faith are off limits and McDonald's. All right. 
Maybe Christ hasn't made an impact on us, somebody said, that it makes it so that we want to share. Maybe we really don't feel the impact enough that we'd want to run out and tell everybody about it. Maybe we feel ill-equipped to share, which I'll address a little bit tonight. But I think this last one down here is the one that I think is the most important. I think we often doubt the very beliefs that we should be sharing. And the reason I highlighted this tonight is because I think this is the reason Exodus exists. I can't tell you how many materials on evangelism I've looked through. I have not seen this point made anywhere. And in the honest conversations that have gone on in this room, and actually even more honest conversations that have gone out outside of this room, we have kind of come to the conclusion that there are many of us who feel unable to evangelize or do not even feel inclined to evangelize to others because we're having doubts about what we believe. And I'm really glad in a way that we're able to articulate this. Because I bet you right now, not only in this room, but within the sound of anybody who hears this recording later, there's going to be people who are going to say, that's me. I never knew there was anybody else who was feeling that way. Or that's exactly what's stopping me. So I'm very glad that our group is able to wrestle honestly enough to get to this level and say, yeah, some of us, we just actually don't really believe it. Or we're struggling with what we believe. And so therefore, we remain silent for that reason. It may be a combination, by the way, of all of these things. But I think that one's key, and I'm going to come back to it. One more thing we've discovered. Evangelism remains an important mandate of the church. Now, we looked at the Great Commission, and we looked at it from two different angles. Morgan was using it to show that we need to be telling others in the world and using it to spread the gospel. Jeremy, last week, came at it from a slightly different angle. There is a focus there in the Great Commission about making disciples, not just in preaching, not just in getting people to say the prayer, but in actually making disciples. I think myself, Morgan, and Jeremy all agree on this point. Last week, Jeremy said that everyone's going to disagree with this presentation, but I actually think I'm going to agree with most of it. Because I feel like we're starting to say very similar things. And this is one of them. I do agree with Jeremy that the focus is on making disciples. And that translates to his point about that's the best way we should be spreading the good news is by showing that we are disciples. But even if you deal with the Great Commission that way and say, look, the primary focus is to go and make disciples, there's this verse, which Morgan pointed out, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're going to deal with this verse tonight in detail. That's a verse specifically about speaking and spreading the word. So is this one. Romans 10, 13 to 15a. Which basically is saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call upon the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So while the focus of the Great Commission is definitely about making disciples, we have admonitions, commands, if you will, that we are to be preaching and speaking. So we can't just say that disciple-making is the only part. There will be people that we're called to speak to who just may reject it and never become disciples, but we're still called to do it. That's a good way to put it together of what we've discovered. And Morgan finally concluded his speaking with saying, evangelism in the end is a matter of obedience. That's another great call-out that if you read these scriptures and understand that we are commanded, and you accept it as a commandment, to preach the good news, then not doing so, for whatever reason, is still disobedience. And I like to put those two things together. What I had on the previous slide about belief, 
and obedience. I want to put them together. Here's what all of us as speakers have said so far about the issue of belief and obedience. You see Morgan's statement, evangelism is a matter of obedience. Jeremy last week asked a very provocative question. Can we really be said to believe something if we don't act in accordance with that belief? If our lives are not consistent with what we say we believe, do we really believe it? And I think the answer is no. I think that a lot of us say we believe things, but if you examined us really carefully under the light, under the magnifying glass, you would find that we don't really believe that as much as we think we do because we're not acting in that way. And I don't want to miss that point because it was such a strong point that he made that it really shaped a lot of my thinking as I was listening to him talking about this idea that we say we believe when we don't act that way. I would add this, we often doubt the very beliefs we're supposed to be sharing. So if you put them all together, my observation about us doubting, that's why we don't share, Jeremy's observation about we not really believe this because it's not the way we act, and Morgan's point about obedience, I think we end up with this kind of a continuum. On one side of the continuum, there's people that the church and a lot of writings have come out over the last few years called non-obedient Christians. I've had conversations with some of you about this that feel like, yeah, there's a lot of non-obedient Christians in the church. People who are Christians in name, but they don't follow any of the precepts or they don't really do what they say they believe. Or even what Christianity stands for, they don't follow those things. And we tend to get really upset. Or maybe there's a little bit of a, of a frustration inside of us. Maybe there should be a little bit of a self-examination, too, because we might fit that in times and in certain places where we know what we believe or we know what we should be doing and we just aren't doing it. Okay, that's fair. And this has been talked about and written about a lot. But Jeremy's comment got me to thinking about another extreme, which is this one over here. What if there are people in our churches that are obedient non-believers? What if there are people in our churches who are struggling with what they do believe, but to kind of resolve the angst, they just look at the ethic of the church and think, I'll just do what I'm supposed to do. Oftentimes, in my observation, this takes the role of perhaps something that you care about. Like you look and you read in the scripture, you go, I can get on board with this. I can get on board with raising relief for Haiti. I can get on board with like caring for the widow or the orphan. I can get on board for standing up, as Jeremy was talking about last week, for sex slavery and ending that. I can get on board with somehow trying to do justice. I can get on board with those things. I'm not really sure about some of the other faith struggles I'm having, but I can get on board with those things. And so we kind of camp out there, hoping that eventually those questions might get resolved. But in the meantime, we'll just do what we think is good about Jesus' teachings or the biblical teachings. We take the best out of them in practice while we're trying to work out the rest. All of us need grace. And all of us need work. But I believe that if we're going to follow Jeremy's admonition from last week, disciples are somewhere right in the middle of that continuum. They're obedient believers. Faith and our belief matters, and we act in accordance with it because of it. One of the provocative questions I would ask you as we consider what the role of the church is sometimes, especially when we're struggling with all the types of things that are going on in the world, is what is it that only the church can do? What is it that only a Christian can do? What's the answer to that question? 
I mean, lots of people can give relief. Lots of people can have justice organizations. Lots of people can care for the widow and the orphan. There's a lot of people that do that already. Peace Corps, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Lots of people can engage in debt relief. What is it that only a Christian can do? And if the answer is nothing, then what are we doing? What are we doing here? Yeah. I think theoretically, our answer I've heard, but I don't know if I can just answer myself, um, is like they can give like the love of Christ, whatever that is, it looks like. But I think that's hard to distinguish sometimes if it is. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah. When you were mentioning about the people giving relief, like lots of people can do it, it does seem, however, like that majority, like a great majority of them have some sort of Christian, like our Christian organizations that provide, you know, mosquito nets or, you know, are in other countries doing I think that's true from our perception. But I just heard Bill Gates speaking at a convention where he's like, we are going to end poverty. We are going to end it. He didn't mean we like the world. He meant we, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Because they actually, within reach, have probably enough money to end it by themselves. They're working on it. I mean, they'd have to not do other things. But he believes it can be done. And there are lots of other organizations like it that seem to be doing it. I mean, I don't know if you know the statistic, but in Haiti, there are 10,000 relief organizations. That was before the earthquake. 10,000 non-governmental organizations and relief agencies. I don't know how many of them are Christian, but even if 5,000 of them are, what about the other five? And then the, the reason I'm asking this question is because it does have to do with belief and obedience and our role in the gospel. Because if we can offer nothing more than mosquito nets or ending poverty or anything, if that's all we can offer, then we could see why there was a little bit of a disagreement between Morgan's statement that we really should be supporting Christian charities because they do something more than just meet physical needs, and Jeremy, who kind of demurred to that last week and said, I just believe as long as good is being done, that's okay. Surly. There have to be a hope and salvation. That's one thing that, you know, church organization that's going to come in into a place like Haiti is going to be different from, let's say, a Bill Gates organization. Um, you can give them hope not only for the life now, but actual hope for the afterlife also. I would probably add that the hope that we give them even for this life now should have a distinctive difference than the hope that anybody else could give. Again, because if there isn't anything distinctive about us, you'd really have to ask the question of what are we doing? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, especially like if you're looking at Acts, well, then looking before that with Luke, and what he stressed there more is Jesus saying, like, I'm instituting the year of our Lord, the year of Jubilee, and that's, and telling about, you know, freeing the captives, giving sight to the blind, healing the sick, and things like that, and he doesn't really talk about the things that people are exactly <coughs> preaching about later in Acts, so that something in there needs to be wrestled with. Well, I would wrestle with it this way. I don't want to be heard as saying that if you were going to be a distinctively Christian response to some need in the world, the only thing you should be doing is giving them hope for this life and the next in Christ. Because I do agree that throughout the Gospels, we have both being stated all the time. 
We have people that are talking about justice and instituting the Jubilee, like you said. People are saying, tell them that this, the blind receive sight and the captives are set free. And we have those statements. And then we have other statements that clearly seem to say that I have come so that I can show how you could be born again. And they're both all throughout the Gospels and they make it into Acts and they make it into Paul's writing on both sides. That's why I think we just ask the question. I don't know that I can answer it tonight. That's going to be part of what makes Jesus exclusive next week. But the question is meant to highlight something that we don't often think about. Is there any reason for us to be here? What is so distinct about us? Maybe hang on to that question until next week when we come back and talk about why Jesus made an exclusive claim. But a lot of times we're going to show the world how good we are in the deeds that we do. And I think that's great, and I totally affirm that, but I don't think that deeds are enough because other groups can do the same thing. You guys have heard me say that when Anthony and I were in Russia together on a mission trip, we were building a playground for the children in this small town. And we worked for like a week and a half doing the most ridiculous digging with no tools. <laughs> they had nothing that you needed to dig holes. And we had to dig these really deep holes and do all this stuff and we built a playground and we painted it with lead paint because that's all they had and that's what they told us to do. And, and we were done with the week and at the end of the week the town hall people said would you please come to City Hall and we'd like to have the mayor and a whole bunch of the people there and we'd like you to tell them why it is that you came to our little town and built this playground. And we were so excited we thought wow we're gonna get to preach the gospel. So we go to this city hall, and there's all these dignitaries there and everything, and they present us with a bottle of vodka. That's the first thing they give us. They're like, here you go. Here's a bottle of vodka. Thank you for building the playground. So we're like, all right, okay. And then the next thing they say is, please tell us why. So through a translator, we like basically preach the love of Christ and give this whole presentation. And when we're all done, like five minutes later, I'm not going to abuse their time. It took like five minutes to explain it. The woman stood up and said, well, frankly, we don't care what you believe. As long as you build playgrounds, you're welcome to come back anytime. Like, that was the story, right? It does matter what we say, even if it falls on deaf ears. Because in their minds, like, hey, we don't care who you are. You could be anything. You could be Buddhist. You could be, like, atheist. We don't care. Just build playgrounds for us. By the way, here's a, here's a quotation directly from Jeremy. If we are going to use words, we have to do these things first. That's what he said last week. And... I would only quibble with it this much. I think we should just change it to say when we use words. We should do these things first. So I am not saying we should not be doing all the things we should be doing. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. We need to be obedient to Christ in everything, including his priority to help orphan, widow, and captive, and naked, and sick, and all those people. We need to be focused on the poor. We need to be doing those things. I'm just saying that when we do them, we should also be doing our preaching and we should also be doing our teaching at the same time. Otherwise, we've lost our distinctiveness because it seems to be a big fad right now to do good things in the world. So whether that came from Christ or not, whether, whether that just came on their own, I don't know. But we're no longer going to be distinct just because we go build playgrounds or help Haiti. So let's focus on this verse, Acts 1.8, a little bit more. And I want to dig out a little bit about what God's role is and what our role is. Let me read it again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want to break apart each part like this. Acts 1.8 is what we call a command 
promise. There's a promise in it, but it's to encourage us in the command that's going to be given. The promise is you will receive power from the Spirit. The command is you will be my witnesses. The Greek word is martis. And specifically, it's stated where we're going to be witnesses. Locally, Jerusalem. In surrounding areas, Judea. In hostile and unpleasant areas, Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. I really do believe this verse supports the speaking that I'm talking about in evangelism. Yes? In the beginning of the verse, I know like grammar of it and different versions could convey different ideas, and so I'm not sure. But you said like even it being a command promise that you will receive power from the Spirit, but isn't that conditional? Does that mean every Christian always has this power? And Because that doesn't seem to fit with other scripture, even in Acts, they said, well, then the Holy Spirit came on him and he did this. You're very good to halt us there. Let me give the context. He's actually talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon them at Pentecost. This is Jesus giving basically a very specific instruction as he's about to ascend. Now, that raises the other question, which is, well, then how do we know that applies to us? Our theology, at least, says that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer at the point that you become a believer. All right? That we literally have the Spirit indwelling us. These people were still waiting for the Pentecost event to happen. Let me go through each of these for a moment. Picking apart the verse. Let's go where Philip wants to go. You'll receive power from the Holy Spirit. What is the power of the Holy Spirit? How do we understand it? First, I'm going to make the case that it shapes us from the inside, not the outside. There's a very crucial distinction about understanding the Spirit's work from the inside or the outside. We covered it at length in our series on spiritual disciplines. The difference between you being transformed versus you trying to just beat yourself into becoming a different person. The difference between transformation and self-motivation or guilt, which is what we often use in churches most of the time. You'll hear it this way, like, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. Now, there's nothing wrong with exhorting people to obey. But if somehow we're going to preach a sermon that just makes everybody feel guilty for not doing something, I'm trying to affect you from the outside. I'm trying to affect you externally. You're trying to affect yourself externally. You're subjecting yourself, hoping that if you just hear it enough times, you'll just change and see our series on spiritual disciplines, but that's not the way it works. Not true change from the inside. Not taking advantage of what the Holy Spirit is doing to transform us. That's the difference. And I think this highlights a really important thing in our discussion. Look at this quote here. It comes from John Bowen. He wrote Evangelism for Normal People. It says this, for Christians to talk about the gospel is a sign of health. To talk about evangelism is a sign that something's wrong. Now notice our whole talk has been about evangelism. What John Bowen is saying is that if we were really spiritually healthy, if we were vibrantly alive in Christ, if we were completely excited about this relationship, we wouldn't be talking about evangelism. We wouldn't be talking about methods. We wouldn't be talking about how to do it, how not to do it, should do it this way. We would just be telling everybody the good news. We would just be sharing how he's impacted our life. We wouldn't need to worry about, like, is it a method? Is it a program? We would just, it would just happen. People could see it, and they would see it in our life. They would see it in our community. They would see it in our actions. They would see it in everything about us because our whole being would reflect that we are wholeheartedly a disciple who loves Jesus so much that everybody around us, we wouldn't even need to say it. But when we talk about evangelism, then it's a sign that there's something wrong. 
Another quote from David Watson, having to stress the Great Commission and having to urge people to witness. There it is, the external. Like, you should be witnessing. It's not a sign of spiritual life, but a sign of spiritual decadence. There's something wrong when we have to tell people that this is something we need to be doing and guilt them into it. In fact, another noted theologian, Jeremy Langell, last week made a point that I think most of us missed because it was towards the end, but it's the same point, and it's equally brilliant. He asked this question, isn't evangelism nothing more than a method? The answer is yes. Evangelism is a method. Telling the good news is something that should be natural. Telling the good news of something that just flows out of our life. And it's abundantly clear. When we start talking about evangelism, there it is again. It's a method. We're raising objections. Well, but how would you do it? What's the best way? Should we do this? It's like, right, because we're not spiritually healthy to the point where it's flowing out of us. So Jeremy's point is dead on. Yes, it is nothing more than a method. And he was saying, then why do it? And in a way, I kind of agree with that statement. Yes, why do evangelism? We shouldn't do evangelism. We should be people who the good news just flows right out of our pores. I know that's a high standard. I know that most of us, including myself, are not there. But that's what we should be shooting for if we're going to set a goal for ourselves. Yeah. Well, this thing about God's power shaping us from the inside, that sounds well and good, but I don't know how to achieve transformation. I don't feel like my life is being transformed, and I don't see that there's anything I can do about that. It's like I'm sitting here waiting for the Holy Spirit to transform me. I'm waiting any time that would be super awesome if my life would have this profound change, but I don't see that happening, so how can I tell other people that's going to happen to them when I don't feel like it's happening to me? Right, but you're very honest in saying, I don't feel like transformation's happening in my life. Hold that thought for a second, because I'm going to come back to it in a second. God's power brings into situations where we're called as witnesses. So the first thing the Holy Spirit is doing is transforming us from the inside. The second thing the Holy Spirit's role is going on is he's the one that's bringing us into situations where we can bring the good news, where we can witness, be a witness, a martus. And third, without the Holy Spirit, we can't really understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit has a role there too to help us understand, not just us, but the person that we're witnessing to. So there's three things that are going on in this power of the Spirit. Transforming us, bringing us into situations where we can witness, and also bringing understanding to both us and the person we're witnessing to that the Spirit gives us. All right? How do I know when the Spirit's prompting me to witness? I don't have a good answer. I mean, look, the reason I wrestle with that is because in the book of Acts, it seems like then the Holy Spirit came upon them, right? Or that idea of the Holy Spirit kind of going, okay, now's the moment, right? So there seems to be, and a lot of people agree, that the Holy Spirit does prompt us or guide us or lead us, and that's one of the things the Spirit does. First, one clue might be the opportunities there, and second, that's all I'm going to say. Because we could spend a whole separate series, and we have in the past, on what is the role of the Holy Spirit. All right? Do you have a comment? Yeah. Um, I think that idea 
because when you look at Acts, there's no doubt there's an intentional effort, but there's also a desire by people like Peter and Paul. Like, they deeply desire to share Christ with others. And that is part of that Spirit's prompting, I would say, is that if we don't have that desire, like this goes back to what John is discussing, the idea of like, well, do we really even believe the things we say we believe, or, or what is Christ actually doing in our lives? Because if that's going on, to me, and I've experienced it in my life too, when, when, and it seems to be in the scriptures, like, we should have that same. And if we don't, that probably share, shows more about ourselves than, than anything else. So, I mean, I think this idea of the spirit prompting is, if God is working in our life, and if we love him, I mean, there should be this, this general desire, these changes of, of what you care about. And one of those should be sharing about God, I think. The role of the Holy Spirit is not something that I'm going to speak authoritatively on because I feel like that would be, I'd be on dangerous ground to speak for the Spirit, to tell you how the Spirit is going to work in every evangelism or witnessing area. But here are just some general observations I will make. First, about transformation. I think we know that the best way to find transformation in our lives is through the practice of the spiritual disciplines. Now, many people in this room have objected to that in the past, but I think that many people in this room have trouble with transformation. It's one of those things that I think you can only find by doing. That transformation only results when you say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this seriously. I can attest personally in my life that I've been completely transformed in one area of my life because I followed certain spiritual disciplines. I wish I had equal success in all the other areas of my life to do the same thing. But I can tell you that I do believe in transformation, and it is a long process, it is not a quick process, but it does require us disciplining ourselves to understand and open ourselves up to the Spirit. I know it sounds crazy, because you're like, the Spirit does the work, so what am I supposed to do? Why does doing the discipline somehow help the Spirit work in my heart? I don't know. I mean, I've read the, the Spirit of the Disciplines, we did the series on spiritual disciplines, it just does. I can't explain the connection, but it does. It's, it's almost like softening the ground before you plant or sow or whatever. It just does. And, and the difference in transformation and outward change, I know outward change because I try to do it every day. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing that. I should be doing this. And we'd go through that. Like Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do those things. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. That kind of outward struggle. But the Spirit changes your heart so you no longer care, or changes your heart so you care so much you want to do the right thing. How does that happen? That's the mystery. But I know that it happens. Dealing with how does the Holy Spirit prompt us, I would add probably this comment. How do we recognize anything from the Spirit if we're not really engaged in cultivating our hearts to be able to deal with the Spirit? I don't want to be harsh and throw this back on us, but a lot of us have trouble with transformation, and a lot of us have trouble with the role of the Holy Spirit, but that's because a lot of us have trouble with discipline. We don't really see that there's going to be a payoff. And I can tell you that I believe there is a payoff, but it just takes years and years to get to it, and then the payoff is great, because your heart has been transformed rather than trying to beat yourself from the outside. Yeah? Like, we shouldn't we be interacting how we should, regardless of whether the Spirit is prompting us or not? Like, shouldn't we be... Acting as disciples, like Jeremy said, and being obedient, like Morgan said, and like sharing the good news because it's coming out of us, regardless of Spirit being there or not. And so I feel like re even recognizing the Spirit being there feels so... I don't, I don't understand, like, where does that get us? Or where does that lead us? 
the question we're trying to address is, if you're living your life as a disciple, and if you are being obedient, when is it that you're supposed to actually add words to what you're doing? All the time? Or, as this verse seems to imply, and it's just implying, because I know this is dealing with Pentecost, but that the Spirit has a role in our witnessing efforts. Because think of the alternative. To say the alternative would be to say, we do it all on our own power completely. And I don't think that's right. I think the Spirit is just as much a part of what we're doing, especially because if you go up a couple verses, you have this word from 1 Corinthians that people may not even understand the spiritual things without the Spirit being present. To do it all on our own ability is not going to be as effective as having the power of the Spirit involved in when we witness. So then, when is the Spirit prompting? When is the Spirit even involved in it? Now, some people say, always. You don't have to worry about it. Just, if there's a situation, just do it, because the Spirit's always there. You don't have to worry about it. Your part is to be obedient, be a disciple, do the things you're supposed to do, and whenever you have the opportunity, add words and witness. Other people say, no, if you look at the model of the book of Acts, they seem to kind of sense when it was that this is the moment I'm supposed to say something. If you followed the first one and just did it all the time, I'm not going to be bummed. But for the people who are asking about what is this power of the Spirit, what is the difference that it makes, the question that comes up is, and how would I even figure it out? Right? And all I'm trying to answer in doing that is say, well, one answer may be the opportunity presents itself, that may be the Spirit, but I can't say that authoritatively. And then going into the whole idea of how am I transformed, how do I even hear from the Spirit, the only comment I'd throw back to you is another question. I don't know but I know that we won't be able to do it if we're not paying attention to even trying to cultivate a life with the Lord indwelling us. We're mostly on our own autopilot. And I don't think that's going to yield a lot of spiritual results or any kind of connection to the Spirit. Let me address Brittany's comment for a second, too, about witnessing. Let me define it. It comes from the definition and the word that Jesus used. Witness being martis, a specific type of witness. Witness meaning a witness in a courtroom trial. Witness being somebody who could speak from their own experience, from their own knowledge. And this trips us up a little bit. Some of you have commented that maybe it's because we feel like we're not experienced or unable to witness to others. And I just want to dispel that by looking at the word witness. We use these words in English, like an eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony, lay witness testimony, the legal word is percipient witness testimony. That's what he used when he said martis, speaking from personal experience. What that frees us up to do is, yes, it is a speaking word, first of all, because it implies testimony. And second, it tells you what type of testimony, your personal experience. We've used that word in the church forever. Like, can you tell me your testimony? It's the same root. You are witnessing to what you know, what Christ has done in your life, what you've experienced. The reason I think that's very important is because it does free us up from feeling like we have to be an expert about everything. But it does also highlight that it is a word that is a verb for speaking and testifying. The way that if somebody came up to you and said, will you be a witness for me in court? Will you testify on my behalf in court? Will you tell people what I'm like, who I am, what I did, what you saw? You don't have to study anything for that. Well, I take that back. I don't want to imply that we can be dumb about it. But I think that the other extreme is sometimes we think, well, I need to understand how everything works out. Now, I do believe there's times when people are called to be expert witnesses. 
There are people in this room who are getting degrees and studying for that kind of life. I've had questions from people in this room who've come up to me and said, I have a friend and they're struggling with this issue and this is what's preventing them from really believing in the truth of the gospel. Wow, that's a tough issue. They're going to need to do a lot of studying. They're going to need to sit down with somebody who could explain some of those things. Not every issue is, oh, that's easy, just tell them this. We know that. That's why we're in this room. That's why we do Exodus. Because these things are hard. And sometimes you need an expert witness. But that's not what Jesus was talking about when he said, you will be my witnesses. He was talking about your lay witness. Yeah. I agree 100% with what you said. I, we wouldn't be doing Exodus if we didn't agree with it. Because it isn't fun sometimes to go through the disciplines that we do. And all the people in here who are studying even more beyond here wouldn't be doing it. The only reason I raise it as a lay or percipient witness testimony is because there are people who are really tied up by this who think, because I haven't done a seminary degree, I really have no place to tell somebody else what God has done in my life. And the first meaning of it was, be my witness and tell your eyewitness testimony. Tell people what I have done in your life. I deal with this in court all the time. The difference between a lay witness and an expert witness. Most lay witnesses that I deal with, I go, look, I need you to testify to these few things, and they get freaked out. But I don't know enough. I'm, not, I'm like, hey, I wouldn't be calling you as a witness if I didn't think you knew the information was that I needed. You've got to trust me as a lawyer to know that I need a few facts from you and I'll put you on the stand and I'll ask you those things because they're from your personal testimony. Witnesses always ask, well, do, should I study them some things? Can you send me some? No, I don't want all that. I want the five or six things I'm going to ask you to do. And I've figured out I'll bring another witness after you who's going to talk about the rest of it. And this is something that I think we lose sight of. In the book of John, Morgan kind of pointed out, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the counselor and another word is the advocate. It's the Holy Spirit who's pulling together all the pieces of witnessing that go on in a person's life to hopefully convict that person into the truth. That's why the role of the Holy Spirit is so important. Because the Holy Spirit is the advocate, not us. We're just the witnesses. And I think we have to keep those things separate. But the reason I agree so much with what you said is because I do believe we should train ourselves to know our faith. Last week or the week before, Monique pointed out that one of the verses that we cite all the time in here 1 Peter 3.15 is that we're always to have a reason for the hope that we have. And that's not just like, just make one up. It means like to actually have an answer and to be prepared to offer it with gentleness and respect when we're asked for the hope that we have, which is exactly a witnessing opportunity. All right? So to make this point pretty clear, if you're one of the people who thinks I'm not capable of witnessing because I need to know more, do more, study more, I encourage you to do that. I agree with Brittany on that point. Let's do more. That's why we have Exodus. And that's why you can go get a degree. You can do anything you want. You can read books. There's so much information online. But that's not a reason for us not to witness. 
waiting until we have some more information. You already know what God's done in your life. Witness credibility is very important when you take the stand and testify on behalf of anybody. If you put yourself out there, you're subjecting yourself to people cross-examining you and looking at your credibility as a witness. What does that have to do with our witnessing efforts? It's the same thing. If your life can be cross-examined, you're not living the way you're saying that we should live, that's going to be affecting the way that we witness to others. So we should keep that in mind as well. Yeah? I just think it's an important point to emphasize in the sense that if we think that God has needed expert witnesses throughout history, the faith would have never spread. I mean, okay, so most of them were not that learned. The disciples, they had failed you know, that test. They went into their businesses with their parents. They didn't. It, it emphasizes both, like we need to study and learn, and part of the ministry that Jesus had was teaching, and part of the early church followed that by the disciples when you look at Acts 2. So the teaching ministry is vitally important, so it's not to say let's not learn. Actually, we're supposed to, but if it were dependent upon expert witnesses, <laughs> we wouldn't be here today as Christians, there's no way. Well, even in the Bible, we see both, right. right? I mean, we see Peter, somebody who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches from what he knows, and I know people can fairly say, well, he spent three years with Jesus learning. True, but if you look at what he was saying, he was talking about his experience and what he knew, and he was putting it all together for people, all right? Then you have people like Paul, who you'd say is closer to an expert witness, who is an expert with the scriptures, who is an expert and trained that way. So he writes much of the New Testament, and we use a lot of his writings for our theology. So there may be an example of somebody who's more of an expert. But even Paul, stressed that many of the things he was talking about came from his personal experience with Jesus. And that it wasn't just things he had heard or figured out or put together. In fact, he insisted that his apostleship was legitimate because he had heard most of them from Jesus and he was a direct eyewitness. And he was no less an apostle. So we have both all the time. And even some of us who study a lot, you know, some of you study even way more than I ever will in this room, still there's going to be time when you have to go back and just be a lay witness. And just say, look, I could tell you all the things that I could explain to you, a hundred theologies, but at the end of the day, what might convince you the most is let me tell you what Jesus has done to change my life. And how that's a different change than just if I had just joined a yoga studio. And if there isn't a difference, we still need to be talking afterwards. All right, where? I mean, I guess the answer is everywhere. Locally and surrounding areas and hostile and unpleasant areas and to the ends of the earth. Again, it's a speaking kind of witnessing. You can't do it without being a disciple. You can't do it without the obedience. You can't do it without the life that goes with it. You can't do it outside of a community. You can't be a lone ranger. But you still are witnessing. Where are these places for us? I mean, maybe Jerusalem is your workplace. I don't know. Maybe it's where you go to school. Surrounding areas. I don't know. Is that your family? I don't know. I, I'm not going to make easy translations of them because it's everywhere. You know, he was stressing, like, do it locally and the places around it, and even the places you don't want to go and to the ends of the earth. They got increasingly more difficult to do, but we're commanded to do them all the place. Samaria, by the way, could be this country, could be where we are now. We're not living in a great land that's like, you know, really open to the gospel anymore. We talked about it at the beginning, about the silence that we feel, the pressure to be silent. So that's a place that might be unpleasant and hostile that we should be witnessing in and to the ends of the earth. It's easy for me to tie up some of the comments from the previous weeks. What's harder to do is to explain to you the relationship between the spirit and witnessing. But what I'd encourage you to do is think about it like I said. Think of the alternative. Do we really believe 
that we can just follow these commandments to witness all over the globe, but not include God in our endeavor? Is that really what we believe? I don't think anybody would raise their hand and say, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Maybe what we need to do is just accept that the Spirit is the one who is responsible for most of the outcome, but we're still commanded to witness. We still have a direct command to do that. And I'll leave you with that last question. What is it about us that's distinct that we're supposed to be doing that only somebody who's a follower of Christ can do? Next week, we take on Jesus' claim that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. Do you believe that? Statistics say that there's a growing number of people who don't believe that anymore. We're going to find out how we believe about it, and what does it even mean, and why would Jesus even say it? Let's pray and close up. Lord, as we often do so many times, I feel like we're wrestling. I feel like we want answers to questions that seem to elude us. And Lord, I'll be honest, I'm coming up empty with answers. I thank you first that you've given us a group that we're honest enough to wrestle with our doubts and our disbelief. That we're honest enough to vocalize the places where we just We just don't buy it. But Lord, this is your domain. Holy Spirit, this is your domain. And so I want to step aside and let you work in our hearts this week to convict us of what it takes for transformation, to prompt us in understanding how you work in bringing the understanding of God to our minds and our hearts. Lord, you do the work. But we're open to let you do the work. Soften our hearts right now. Let us sit openly before you in our place where we don't understand. And ask you to bring us understanding. Lord, the scriptures say that if any of us lacks wisdom, that we should just pray and seek you, Lord, and you would give it to us. Lord, we dare to ask that tonight. Give us Wisdom, give us understanding. Holy Spirit, overwhelm us this week. Pray this in your name. Amen.